So let's pray together. Father, we come before you as your people, as your children. We approach your throne with confidence because of Jesus. And God, we praise you for who you are and for all that you have done. We remember your works. We remember your deeds. We remember how you created all things and how um, everything comes into being through you. God, we are also mindful that we are small and yet in your, in your bigness, God, you remember us and you know us because you formed us and knitted us together and you number the hairs on our heads. And so, God, we come to you as children who have been reconciled back to you through Jesus, adopted and, and called your own. And we lift up our brothers and sisters to you. And we pray for healing, God, in our church family. We pray for those in our church family who are battling illnesses that are still playing out, that the effects of them are still unknown, where the road is going to lead. God, we pray that you would encourage them and build them up. We pray for healing in their bodies. We give you thanks for those who have come through some scary things over the last couple of weeks. God, we are just so thankful, God, and we give you praise and we worship you and we honor you uh, for that. And God, we, we lift up Brian as he moves down to to Milwaukee, and we pray, God, that you would go before him, that you would fan the flame of faith that has been in him, and that you would surround him with people who would love him and walk alongside of him and point him to you. And God, I pray for all of us here who are struggling, whatever we, whatever situation we come to, come with this morning, whatever baggage we're coming with, whatever kind of morning or week or month we have had, God, I pray that we would all come together and acknowledge that we are not here by accident. We are not here because of our strength or because of our wisdom or because of how good we are, God. We are here because you have placed us here. You have brought us here in your mercy, in your kindness, in your grace. And I pray that we would worship you in the midst of all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be in Psalm 6 today. And it's printed on the back of your little worship folder here. and So you can look at that or open up your Bibles to Psalm 6. And this, this sermon really kind of serves as a prequel to a sermon that uh, we, we did a couple weeks ago on Psalm 130. So we, talked about, we went through Psalm 130 and talked about what does it look like to wait on the Lord? What does it look like to see what God is doing in the midst of the waiting, even though it may feel hard and long, and, and how God works in the midst of that and what he's doing and how do we call on him in the midst of that? But this psalm, Psalm 6, is, is another one that kind of evokes a lot of these same emotions, but I feel like it's kind of the, the precursor to waiting. It's the question of, well, what do you do when you're not even sure you're, you're ready to wait? You're not even to a place where you can say, God, I, I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting for you. I trust you in all things. Like, how do I get to that place? How do I get to the place where I'm, I'm facing circumstances that just feel so overwhelming to me? They feel so daunting. What do I do so that I can actually get to a place where I am trusting God and waiting on him to bring deliverance and to bring healing? What we're going to see in this psalm is 
is really four key things, and I'm trying to to do a better job of outlining things so you can follow me, especially when I know the the sun is on you, and so that makes everybody's attention spans um, shorter. And so when I look at this, I'm really looking at four key things here in this psalm, and see if you can see them. But we see in David as he's writing this out, we see um, humility, we see perspective, we see grief, and we see confidence. And we see this path and this journey that he kind of goes on that I think is really helpful, will be helpful to us this morning. He starts out in verse 1. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? So I'm pause there in this first stanza. He, he believes, he's got this understanding that you can see right away that he believes that God should be angry with him. He's assuming God is angry. He says, rebuke me not in your anger. He's saying like, don't, I know that you're angry. I know that there is wrath in you, but don't, don't rebuke me. Don't discipline me in that wrath. He's calling out, asking God, would you be gracious to me? He's, he's pleading with God right now. He's calling out for mercy. And, and what we know about David and, and many of the Psalms, what we see in that is this understanding that his calling out, his desperation, his, his anguish, his kind of languishing in all of these situations, that he does not see the problem as being God. He sees the problem as being internal. He knows that the root of all this despair that he's feeling is his own heart. You can hear it in his voice. He's, I, I, I know I'm struggling. I know it's a, a lack of faith, God. Like, I need you to do something in me because this is what I'm battling in me. And I think this is a really key part when we're facing these kinds of things that are overwhelming is our nature and our tendency is to always look outside, to always look and say, well, if these things were different, we talk about this all the time, if these things were different, if these circumstances were different, if people functioned in a different way, then all my problems would be solved. But what all the authors in scripture and especially in the Psalms are saying, no, the root is here. It's here. And so he knows that and he goes before the Lord and he says, look, God, if I were you, I'd be super angry with me right now. I would rebuke me. But I'm asking for you to be gracious. We know that so often this is because we don't see things clearly. Last week we talked about delighting in the word. This is a clear example. We, we know, we talked about what the Bible is and how it's God revealing himself to us. We know that if we saw the Bible correctly, if we believed that it really is what it says that it is, if we understood fully what we gained from it, how we get to abide in Christ in it and through it, then we would devour it. If we fully believe that, man, we would, we would be reading it and devouring it in such a way that we'd have to pry ourselves away from it. And the only way we could pry ourselves away from it is if we got to go and obey it and do all the things and experience all the things that we see in it, right? Like if we saw correctly and believed fully, that would be our natural response. But we talked about how that's not our response. How often we see being in the word as a burden or a chore or a task. The problem isn't Scripture, the problem is my view, my heart. 
We talk about these mountaintop experiences, and we know that Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's transfigured before Peter, James, and John, and they all see his glory, and they don't want to leave. They just want to worship him forever. They see Jesus appear like that, and they say, we just want to be here forever. This is holy, and they worship him. And we know that, that that's really how it should be for us. Every time we gather together, every time we worship our king, we should be that. But we aren't, we aren't, and the disciples weren't either because they didn't always see Jesus for who he was. When Jesus is transfigured and shows them his glory, they worship him and they don't ever want to leave. They don't ever want to stop. But the second he doesn't look like that, things change. See, Jesus didn't become something else in the transfiguration. He was still the same Jesus. They just had eyes to see him. So the problem that David understands is not how active God is or how valuable the word is. He understands that it is always our eyes that don't see, our ears that don't hear, and our minds that do not understand. And he gets to that place where he acknowledges it and he says, my issue is not with your faithfulness, it is with my lack of faith. And so he says, rebuke me not in your anger. I should know better. I mean, how many times do you do that? Like, God, I should know better. I know all the things that you've done, and yet here I am, languishing. He says, be gracious to me, for I am languishing. He's calling out for mercy. He's repenting. Repentance is where we meet God in these hard circumstances. God, forgive me. Repentance is not just listing all the things that you've done wrong or could have done better. Like, okay, God, I'm sorry. I know I had a bad week this week, and I'm sorry. I know I should have gone to church. I should have read the Bible. I know I should have done those things. That's not repentance. Repentance is over the root heart issues that brought about my disobedience. Understanding that God's commands are always for our good and meant for our joy. And when we don't see them as good news, then something is wrong. And so we, we dig in there. Like it's not, it's not the thing of like, I'm sorry, God, I, I, haven't, been, I haven't been at church lately. It's God, I, I don't have eyes to see the beauty of being a part of God's family and coming together to worship you and sing together and to hear your word and to pray together and to give each other hugs and to encourage one another. Like I just, I don't value it. I don't see it. I don't, I don't understand it. I don't grasp it. God, help me. Forgive me for not seeing things and not believing that and understanding it. These are deep-seated heart issues. And God, please don't, don't respond to me in anger. Don't rebuke me. But God, instead, be merciful and gracious to me. And here is the incredible good news in the midst of this, is that he is gracious and merciful. The great thing is that God is drawn to you in this state. He doesn't reject you. He doesn't find you undesirable in that state. He is drawn to us in our weakness and in our brokenhearted nature. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Listen, if you are feeling brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, understand that the Lord draws near to you. He does not wait for you to figure things out and to become stronger so that he can do something with you. He is drawn to you. He saves the crushed in spirit. He's, it's manifested in Jesus in Mark 5 when he takes the bleeding woman and he lifts her up and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He calls those who are sick and ailing, Son, daughter, 
we talk about this all the time that we that that we we our tendency is to believe that if I, I get my act together, then I can go to him. And we must realize that it is our very efforts to try to get our act together in our own strength, to put together a facade, to present ourselves as better than or good enough or somehow worthy of God to, to pay attention to us. It is those very acts that are separating us from God and hardening our hearts towards him. Like our desires to give ourselves our own righteousness, to justify ourselves, that's what hardens our heart towards God. That we understand that if we surrender to him, that he came for the sick, not for the well. He's drawn to the sinner, not the self-righteous. As James 4 says, he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Like submit and humble yourself before the Lord and repent. And don't be distracted by other things that other people are doing in other circumstances. But this is between you and God. God, I repent that I've forgotten who you are and what you have done and that I don't see it as all satisfying. Deliver me. And so that's what David says here. Verse 4, he says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Now listen to him. He says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Look what he's doing here. He's saying, God, deliver me for what purpose? For the sake of your name, for your glory. He's basically kind of bargaining with God saying like, how can I praise you if I'm dead? How can I praise you if I'm in shield? There's, there's nobody there to, to praise you. He doesn't say, God, deliver me because I've tried to be faithful. Or deliver me, God, because look at everything that I've done for you. He's saying, I want to praise your name, God. Save me for your sake, for your name's sake, for the sake of your steadfast love. Let my life be used for your glory. This is key when we are facing any kind of circumstances to understand this very simple phrase that a pastor of mine a long time ago would say all the time. He would say, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's one of the most freeing things to remember and to realize that it's not about you. It's not about me. John the Baptist understood this. In, in John 3, he talks about how the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Like John the Baptist had a pretty good following. Like people thought he was pretty, pretty big stuff. He was, he was confronting people. He was baptizing people. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, look, I've got to decrease. Because my whole existence was only to point to him. And he says, that's not a bummer. That's a joy. The friend of the bridegroom is thrilled when the bridegroom comes in. Like, that's the whole reason we're here. Like, you don't go to a wedding and see all the groomsmen standing there being like, hey, look at me. Like, if you had a groomsman, imagine like a best man at a wedding just like, you know, strutting and doing all the stuff and posing up there, like while everybody's up there. At some point, someone's gonna be like, dude, it's not about you. It's not about you. You exist. The whole reason you exist standing there is pointing this way. And that's who we are. 
Like our whole existence is to point this way. That's why we exist. And the question is, do you want that? Do you want to decrease so that Christ may increase in your life? Like, by the way, this doesn't mean that you're insignificant. That's a false version of this. It doesn't mean that like, okay, well, then my life doesn't matter. I'm just a speck of dust. Here's what's crazy about what scripture talks about. Scripture does say that we are dust, right? Scripture does say that we're but a vapor or a mist, that our lives are just like that, that the greatest accomplishments we could ever have are just like, just these little specks. But it also says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It also says that God knitted you together in your mother's womb, that he numbers the hairs on your head, that he knows exactly who you are, and that while he knew you as a sinner, became flesh and walked among us and rescued you out of the pit and raised you to walk in newness of life. It's these both incredible truths. It's incredible news that our significance is not found in glorifying ourselves, but in making much of God. It's why we exist. And getting to that place can feel hard, but that is the road that we must walk as we repent and we gain perspective that I want my life, my life exists to glorify God the most. If my life is just about me having the best possible earthly life I can have and being successful and healthy with great relationships, then man, my life is not working out. If that's, the, if that's it, then I'm going to make idols of those things and I'm going to become bitter because everybody in the world does not understand that it's about me. But when I understand that my existence is just to glorify God, then my prayer becomes, okay, God, just deliver me however you're going to deliver me so that I can praise you. Whether that's through my business succeeding or whether it's through cancer. Whether it's through living until I'm 95 years old and giving wisdom and being of sound mind and sharp mind or whether it's having Alzheimer's set in at age 45 and begin to deteriorate. Like whatever it is, God, deliver me either from my circumstances or from my heart that is not content. Give me grace to handle this moment so that I can praise you. It's not always, God, take away these other things. It's God, just, I just want to worship you through it. Whatever you want to do with my life, use it to glorify you. Give me grace to handle all of this through worshiping you and praising you through it. Don't let me fall into despair. Deliver me from this depression or give me grace to worship you through the depression. Deliver me from this cancer or give me grace to worship you and treasure you as I am dying. Give me grace. Give me, give me an opportunity to love you and to worship you. And if you just hand me over to this, God, if you just let me go, then I'll fall into despair and I can't praise you. God, if you deliver me, then I will worship you through it. Whatever you do. And you might say, like, I'm not strong enough to do that. That sounds great in theory, but I can't do that. I'm not strong enough for that. There may be other people who have that kind of faith, but I don't have that kind of faith. I am too weak. Well, then you're in luck. Because Paul says that your weakness is, is far from a hindrance in this. 
It is actually a strength because it is how the strength of God is on display in your life. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul goes on this kind of iconic rant. People are boasting around him and he's basically like, I can boast too. He does this a couple times and one time he does it about all of his law following, but this time he actually boasts in his weakness and his sufferings. And he talks about, he he says like, here are all the horrible things that happened to me. He's actually boasting in things that people would say, you know, man, that's kind of evidence that God hates you. Like as they're all saying, as other people are boasting, they're like, look at how blessed I am. I am wealthy. I am healthy. Everybody loves me. And people are like, oh man, God must really love, love him. And Paul comes on the scene. He's like, look at how blessed I am. I've had all kinds of sicknesses and I've been shipwrecked and everybody wants to kill me. And everyone's going, what? how is that evidence that God loves you? And he says, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, see this pointing, my life exists for him. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You hear what he's saying? He says, it's not about me. You're all going to boast in all the things that God has done for you, that your life is so great. I'm going to boast in the fact that my Lord has sustained me and I'm worshiping him through all these calamities and through my weaknesses. Whatever will display his power and glory more is what I want. And he addresses that more in Philippians where he says, look, it's not, it's not about not being wealthy. He said, like, I can be wealthy and I will glorify Christ with it. And I can be poor and I can be, I can be sick or I can be healthy. Like whatever it is, God, whatever, wherever you place me, whatever circumstances you give me, I'm going to worship you. And I'm asking you to deliver my heart to worship you above all things. And so you would think at this point in the psalm, like he's wrestling through this, he's repenting, he's calling out and realizing my life exists for you. I want to praise you that that would fix it. It'd be great. But look at verse six. I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. I mean, a little melodramatic, right? Like, do you ever read the Psalms? Like, I, I tend to be like a guy, I can be emotional and then I can also be a little like detached or whatever. But, but sometimes I read these and I'm like, holy cow, David. Just relax, man. You drench, you flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. But he's feeling this at a deep level, and many of you know what that's like. And this is next level grief. This isn't a little discouragement. I flood my bed with tears. The question is, like, well, what's happening? Does he is he forgetting that stuff again? Is he falling right back? Is this one of the roller coasters? You see him sometimes go on these roller coasters, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think he's struggling with doubt. I just think he's grieving at the state of what's going on. And this is key. And this is something that we struggle with sometimes in the church of understanding that I want to make sure that we spotlight. And that's this. Grief in and of itself is not a sin. Sorrow and grief 
are not sin. And there's a thought sometimes that grieving is somehow a lack of faith. That if I just had enough faith, I would never be sorrowful. If I just had enough faith, I wouldn't grieve. If I just had enough faith, then every day I would be like, hey, best day ever, and be just super overtly and outwardly joyful. But that is nonsense. And I know it's nonsense because Jesus. Because Jesus grieved. Jesus suffered heartache. You think about how he cried over Jerusalem and just, oh, if I could just gather you together like a mother hen gathers her chicks. Like if I just do that, if you would turn. We see him weep. We see him suffer. We see him grieve. In John 11, we see this incredible picture where Jesus is told that Lazarus, a friend of his and the brother of Mary and Martha, has fallen ill. And then while he gets that news, he knows that, that Lazarus has actually died. And he goes and, and, and Martha meets him and, and says, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he, he ministers to Martha and then Mary comes out. And he ministers to Mary and he goes and, and, and Mary is just overcome with grief and she is weeping. And John eleven thirty three 33 says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. It says, Jesus wept. Notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their grief. He doesn't say to them, he doesn't like put a Pat Martha and Mary on the shoulder and say, oh, they're there. You know, if you, if you understood what I understood, you wouldn't be sad right now. There'd be no tears right now. You just got to let go and let God. Jesus never says that. He never says like, hey, you just got to have faith. It's totally going to be fine. Just don't worry about it. Shake it off. He doesn't say that because faith in and of itself doesn't eliminate our grief. Now, it's true that not all sorrow is holy. It's important to break that apart. There is a sorrow and a grief that is born out of self-righteousness, out of pride, out of placing myself at the center of the story. That's a sorrow that, that accuses God of being unjust or unfair. God, you, you've done this to me. You, you've withheld good things from me. God, I've done all this for you and you haven't done anything for me. There are tears of bitterness. That is a grief for those who have no hope. That is a grief of those who do not know Christ and do not know the glories that he offers. You know, when... when um, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about not wanting you to grieve or be uninformed about those who have passed away. He says, I do not want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to grieve as those with no hope. Like you have a hope in the resurrection. So you grieve, but you don't grieve as those with no hope. A grief with, as those with no hope is one that leads us away and pulls us away from Jesus and hardens our heart towards God and brings about bitterness and resentment. But that is not all grief. There is a grief that is holy and good. And we see this on display when Martha approaches and she says to Jesus, if if you'd been here, my brother would still be alive. And we ask ourselves, like when you read that, that could have been an accusation or it could have been a statement of faith. And Jesus digs a little bit 
to reveal what is actually going on in her heart. Jesus responds to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So we see right there, it's her faith. She's like, I know Jesus. I know that that he's going to raise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus says to her, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. You see, Jesus is saying, it's not just this event that's going to happen. When we talk about those things, we comfort with one another. We know one day he's going to make all things right. One day all of this is going to be healed and made right and made whole. But what we have to remember is that it's Jesus who's going to do that. He is the resurrection and the life. It's not some event we're looking forward to. It is him. And he says, do you believe this? And she says, I do. I do believe. And it's after that that Jesus then weeps with them. Like, look, there's so much in the world that is worthy of our grief. And we are called to sit with people and grieve and mourn and weep and listen to the Holy Spirit as we do that. And if we are in people's lives, if we're people that we are walking with and and, and entrusted in, in discipling, then there is a time for a question. And the question is simply often, do you believe that he is the resurrection and life? So the person who has been betrayed in a marriage, we weep with them. We grieve and there sometimes comes a time and it's not on social media and it's not from a distance and it's not with some trite saying. It's the kind of conversation that happens at 2 a.m. when you've been weeping with them and sitting with them and crying with them. And you just, as you're praying and you say, do you believe him that he is the resurrection and the life? And then when the answer is yes, I do, then we grieve more and we weep more. One time I was talking to a a mother who had gone through what is every mother's nightmare. She had buried a child. Her baby had passed away. And years later, I was talking with her and and just said, so what does that look like? How How do you handle that? How do you deal with that? How do you talk to your other kids about their sister and she said, you know, we celebrate her birthday, but she said that feels weird because I'm, I'm never really feeling very celebratory on her birthday. I don't feel very happy, and, and birthdays are supposed to be happy. And I don't know if I'll ever feel happy on her birthday. And what I wanted to encourage her with is the same thing that I would encourage you. If there's something you say, I don't know if I'll ever be happy about that or in that moment. Say, that's not sin. That's grief. Because on her birthday, Jesus is also weeping with you. He's grieving with you. Her grief is not, though, without hope. Her grief is not as a mother who will never see her daughter again. We talked about that. Of like, you imagine what it's going to be like the day of the resurrection? And we see that. We hope for that. We believe in that. We rejoice in that. Her grief is not as a mother who will never see her daughter and never get to know her daughter. Her grief is of a mother who misses her daughter right now. And that is the kind of grief that our Father sits with us in and grieves with us. 
So whatever you are grieving, my, my great prayer is that you would not grieve as those with no hope, but that you grieve as those who have answered Jesus when he says, I, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe these things? You say, yes, I believe you. And I am brokenhearted right now at the brokenness around me. Yes. And at the end of this section, when David is pouring out his heart, he's still grieving. He, it's like this deep, this little bit of deep breath. And there's a resolve and a confidence. He says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. He's saying after all of this, he he repents. God, don't rebuke me in your anger. And God, I want to praise you. Deliver me so that I can praise you. And he talks about his grief. I'm grieved to this deep extent. But then now there's this resolve and this confidence. The, The Lord has heard my plea, accepted my prayer. How can he be so sure? Are you that confident when you cry out to God? Are you that confident that God hears you? And if so, what's your confidence based on? I've asked that question of so many people over the years. When they say, well, yeah, I pray. I'll ask sometimes the question of, how do you know he hears you? And so often I get the answer of like, well, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I feel like I've done some, I try to do the right thing. And so I think, I think he listens to people who who try to do the right thing and try to do good things. And so he'll hear me. Notice that's not where David's confidence is in. He's not confident that God has heard him because of how good he is. His confidence is in God. His confidence is in this Lord who has steadfast love and patience and merciful and gracious. It's in him. We know as Christ followers that God hears us and we are confident because of Jesus, not because of our work, but because of Jesus. He is our great high priest. Hebrews 4 talks about this and says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our confidence comes from Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, then you can be confident that your Father in heaven hears your prayers. He hears your weeping, your crying out. We approach the throne of grace with confidence, full of faith, that we may receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Listen, our our confidence is not in our righteousness, but in his. And because of that, we can approach him humbly and repent. So back to the beginning of the psalm. I can approach him humbly and repent because I don't have to defend myself to him. I don't have to present myself in a certain way. I don't have to make make my stuff look better and shade like a better light on it. I can just say, God, look, like, don't, don't rebuke me in your anger. Like, I'm just faithless. I'm just stumbling here. 
And we can do that because our confidence isn't in presenting ourselves or our own righteousness. Our confidence is in his righteousness. Our confidence that he hears us is not because we're a really big deal. It's not because we're the center of the universe. And God, don't you notice what's going on here in my world? Our confidence is found in the one who is the center of the universe, loved me and gave himself up for me and called me his own. My confidence is as I grow in my understanding of how my life exists to serve him and to glorify him. Now I can face anything because I know in anything I can glorify him. I can worship him. I can demonstrate how valuable he is. I can be blown away that my significance is found in being faithful to him. Like we got to wrap our brains around this idea in the kingdom that The greatest human accomplishment is nothing compared to the smallest act of faith. Like we we don't understand this. It's hard to wrap our brains around it. But you could invent, you could invent the way to renewable energy to completely release us from all need of any fossil fuels or anything, just full on, just constant renewable energy. This huge problem that the humans have been trying to, to solve for so long. You could, you could, you could do all of that. And in the kingdom, that would be nothing compared to giving a homeless man a drink of water in faith. Nothing. So our confidence is that he hears me and that he would deliver me because he would use me to glorify him, that others would know his love. And our confidence is not found in our strength to hold it together. How many times do you tell someone who's grieving to be strong? Why? Christian, tell them to be weak. Be weak. Weep. Grieve. Let him be your strength. Let him be your confidence. Knowing that when you weep, Jesus weeps with you. And we're confident in all of that because we believe that he is the resurrection and the life. So this is what we've been offered. This is what we see in Psalm 6. If we're facing any of those circumstances to approach God with confidence and humility and repent and lay it all out there. To approach God and gain perspective with that humility breed perspective in your life that your life exists to point to him and as that it has more significance than you ever imagined. And to worship him through any circumstance. To be used for his glory, to approach him with incredible, great confidence, to answer the question, I believe. To wherever that is right now for you, wherever you are in that moment, I'm just to ask you, what is, what is that next step? To step forward into the presence of God, to acknowledge those things. Maybe it's to commit your life to Jesus today. Maybe you've never, you just say like, look, I don't know where I am with this. I have never known, but I want that. I want to turn. Then I would say turn and repent. Don't justify yourself. Don't defend anything. Don't say, well, this wasn't my fault. This was all kinds of garbage happens all around us every day. It's because of our sin and the brokenness of this world. Just between you and God, say, God, please forgive me. Repent and turn to him and be adopted as his son or his daughter and be loved and reconciled. Maybe it's to get 
baptized and say, I've been putting this off, but I need to declare to everyone, I belong to Jesus and I exist to follow him. Maybe it's to recommit yourself to getting into the word or to obeying him, to live for him, to just remind yourself over and over, it's not about me. It's not about me. My life exists to point to his glory. Whatever it is, understand that your father meets you with mercy and kindness and he is calling you to something far greater. Let's pray. Father, help us to help one another to see this. God, let this stir in our hearts, not because of a, of a sermon, but because of the truth that it's pointing to. The reality, God, that you are who you say you are. That you created us. But we have turned from you and rebelled against you and wanted to be God ourselves. But God, we repent and we turn from that. We say, God, would you deliver us? Deliver us so that we can praise your name. Deliver us for the sake of your name. Don't let us fall into despair. But God, even in the midst of our grief, let us worship you. Let us declare we believe that you are the resurrection and the life. And then let that embolden us to grieve as those with hope. To sit with one another, and to weep with one another, and to point one another constantly back to you. And then we approach you with full confidence because of all that you have done. We remember all the things that you've done. We remember what you've done in our lives. And so we approach you with confidence because of who you are. And we declare all of your goodness. We praise your holy name. Amen.